Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Thrive Neurosport podcast series. I'm your host, Katie Mitchell. I'm a PhD candidate, registered physiotherapist, and certified athletic therapist. And on this podcast, we'll be discussing the latest research in concussion education, management, and rehabilitation to thrive on in sport and life. I'm really excited today for episode three of the podcast. We have Melissa Biscardi. She's a registered nurse, osteopathic practitioner, and she's a concussion specialization. Uh, she is a clinician and also a PhD researcher working in Toronto, Ontario, and now virtually across Canada, likely due to COVID. <laughs> um, her educational background began in nursing in 2006. She then went on to complete studies in osteopathy and functional neurology. Melissa's passion for brain health and helping others recover from brain injury was inspired by her own brain scare in 2013, which we'll dive into a little bit. Uh, since then, she's completed a master's of science at U of T in 2019, which focused on persistent symptoms in women following concussion with a focus on reproductive health outcomes, cognition and distress. Melissa has recently also started her PhD at U of T, where she will continue to explore concussion and interventions that improve recovery and quality of life. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. I'm so excited. We're finally meeting virtually, which is yes. exciting. Thank you so much for having me. This yeah, is so one thing I love about um, social media and the internet is we get to meet so many people that we may not have otherwise. Yeah, definitely. So we connected on Instagram, just mm -hmm. kind of as, as a lot of practitioners have kind of over COVID, um, just mutual interests and and, you know, being involved in research and in concussion care. So um, I'd love to hear about your unique story behind your uh, credentials and kind of your academic pathway. So um, if you could explain to listeners kind of how you got to where you are today and uh, yeah, just explain sort of the, the different things that helped guided you. Sure. So, yes, like you mentioned, I started in nursing and I always had an interest in research from the first time I took 
the nursing research course. So that seed was planted. But when I graduated, I worked in reproductive medicine. So there's kind of an ebb and flow in terms of my story, but it's not linear. So uh, after graduating, I worked in reproductive medicine clinics. So individuals undergoing, let's say, in vitro fertilization or sperm donation, situations like that. And I did that for a little while. And then I ended up working with a nurse researcher. And she was amazing. She was someone who did trials, which is really uncommon in nursing. Nurses traditionally shy away from that sort of research. So I worked under her for a while. And then it was getting to the point where you're only doing data. You know, you're not seeing patients anymore. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I need to start seeing patients again. And at that point, I met an osteopath. And I thought he was amazing. I thought, oh my gosh, I, I want to be like him. So I asked him one day, what do you think about me sort of changing my career path a little bit? And he said, oh, that's a great idea. So he ended up being my mentor. And I studied osteopathy and sort of started to change my path. And then in 2013 is when I had my own brain scare. And I've had concussions, but I've always had quite a smooth recovery. So my concussions were not my, my big scare. My big scare was in 2013, and I started to lose my memory. And it was gradual at first. So like most people, I just brushed it aside and then it just got more and more frequent and I was forgetting situations. I was forgetting people's names and then forgetting people's names who I had known for like 10 years. So for me, there are all these red flags, but it sort of became a joke to people around me, which was unsettling, right? It's just sort of not having that confirmation that something is wrong. And then one day I went into actually my mentor's treatment room and he was treating someone and I said, oh, I'm Melissa. Nice to meet you. And the guy on the table says, are you kidding me? And it was someone I knew, like I patient I had met many, many times before. And then that was sort of the last straw. And so I, of course, went to the doctor, had MRI and all this testing, but it was coming up clear. So it was just chalked up to, oh, you're stressed. It's nothing serious. But I don't know. Let's say I was 30 years old. So memory loss is not normal, right? I was like, if this is how I am now, like, what am I going to be like at 50? So I just had to do my own digging. And then I figured out just by fluke that it was related to the fact that I was taking Benadryl every night. So there's a big research study that Benadryl is associated with Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when they have those warning labels about over-the-counter medication, you should read them. <laughs> so I was taking Benadryl every night and Benadryl interferes with acetylcholine. So, which is a memory neurotransmitter. So it all made sense. I came off the Benadryl and then slowly my memory started to come back. But the whole experience of being lost in the medical system, my 
experience not being validated really opened my eyes, especially as a healthcare provider, knowing the system, like I knew how to work the system. Yeah. So, so how are other people experiencing their sort of health concerns? And that really had me start to dial down on brain health and an area where people are often sort of dismissed. And especially back then, like concussion now is a, um, what's it called? It's on the radar. But yeah, for health, sure. Right? But it wasn't back then. So yeah, so that led me to functional neurology and, and sort of my clinical practice focusing more on brain health. And then I knew, well, this is a long story. So <laughs> I knew that I wanted to go into research. So as I started to explore different supervisors, I met up with Dr. Angela Colantonio, who looks at brain health and women's health. And that's how I ended up in my, in my master's thesis, which looked at persistent symptoms in women who've had a TBI. And initially it was open to all levels of, of TBI, but really once we started to recruit, it really was more, um, well, mild cases, but certainly not mild in symptoms. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to explain what functional neurology is to anyone who may not understand or know what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's more, it's not a type of treatment, it's more a paradigm. So how mm -hmm. you approach care, and it really involves research from, from all areas. So from, I know you're a stickler on the use vision therapy, but <laughs> eye movement therapy, <laughs> vestibular therapy, manual therapy, a lot of people in functional neurology have, a, you know, a nutritional component. So I would say it's, a holistic approach to care and focusing on function, functional outcomes, as opposed to, you know, using medications to sort of dampen symptoms. Right. Okay. So it, it kind of encompasses all those other clinical domains, mm -hmm. including some of the other health domains. Um, do you find specifically that like your uh, background in nursing plays a role in the care that you provide? I think it set me up really well in terms of developing um, client relationships, like the therapeutic relationship. I definitely am a real empathetic and compassionate practitioner. And I mean, we all should be that way, but I know that is not the case. <laughs> but it became easy for me once I started to transition to form those relationships and the sort of psycho-emotional component of support, which I think makes a really big difference. And and maybe just approaching things a little bit differently, coming from a more specific medical background as opposed to rehabilitation. That's those are not the right words, but if you yeah. know what I mean. <laughs> so you came in with like a different lens, essentially, exactly. of like looking at it from you know traditionally from like you know other allied health uh, practitioners. Now, your experience as, uh, in especially in research, kind of like post-nursing um, that you worked in women's health and uh, did some work there, is like that what kind of inspired your master's to look into reproductive health and women post-injury? So it really was kind of, I guess, serendipity <laughs> because I had that experience, which wasn't on my radar, to be honest, like, oh, I should draw in this, this background in reproductive health. But then when I was speaking with Dr. Cole Antonio, we realized, oh, wow, this is a great 
well, first of all, it's a huge gap, and but it's a great fit for me to combine the two. So it was almost meant to be. <laughs> yeah, the, it's interesting. A lot of people who have been on here is kind of like, it's just sort of come together. It never really was something like, you know, you were like searching for specifically this topic. Um, it just kind of worked out in sort yeah, of fate. Um, so go through a little bit of like what your master's kind of specific. I know it was fairly extensive, the data you collected with that. Um, and it's pretty unique to looking at sex differences, uh, especially with more specific hormones than kind of the traditional hormones of, you know, estrogen, progesterone, mm -hmm. testosterone. Um, so explain a little bit kind of like, I guess the idea, idea behind that and also kind of like the actual process and collecting that data and the, the findings. Sure. So, and I would have started the master's in 2017. So at that point there was even less research on women and brain injury than there is now. It was really a wide open field and we're gaining some headway, but we still need more. Um, so Dr. Colantonio had done some research looking at long-term outcomes in women following TBI and up to 10 years later. And what was coming up, and it was questionnaire-based, was that women reported disruptions in their periods. They had more postpartum depression and they were less they were more likely to not have a pregnancy go to term so whether that was either by choice or not by choice so there was something there that to be explored like what is happening with the reproductive system and we know from other research that there are certainly hormone disruptions that can happen after a TBI and although the research is super varied, so some research says 15%, some says 80%, you know, depending on the sample, the timing, and the assay. But we knew we wanted to explore sort of hormone disturbances in women following a traumatic brain injury and how this relates to reproduction or even more, does that disruption lead to a potential for early menopause because early menopause then sets you up for cognitive decline. So sort of this okay. snowball effect, which is kind of a far reach in some ways, but also logical in other ways, right? Just like lining up the, the dominoes. So started to do the literature review in this area. And I mean, disruptions in, in a woman's period following a concussion, like now it's well documented in the acute phase or the chronic phase. And there's a little bit of research that looks at, okay, is it the trauma or is it the TBI? Because just a psychological trauma can disrupt a women's cycle. But it still seems like the TBI is fair or worse. So then we said, okay, well, how are we going to design this study? Because the problem with estrogen is that, well, it depends where you're measuring it during the cycle, but then also if they're on contraception or not. So that's why we were shying away from that. And then we started to look towards anti-malarian hormone. And anti-malarian hormone is a less well-known hormone. It's 
produced in the granulosa cells of the ovaries. <laughs> and it, it reaches its peak around the, our, the women's 20s, so when you're the most fertile. And then it decreases with age, becoming basically non-existent around 50 when you hit menopause. So this was, we thought this was a great marker because it's, uh, does, it doesn't respond negatively to contraceptive use. Like you can measure it no matter what, you can measure it any time of day, any time of the month. And it would indicate if these women were more likely to go into menopause early. So any questions at this point? <laughs> No, this is incredibly interesting. Um, like, I actually hadn't really heard much about anti-malarian hormone. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I'm really just curious of kind of how you, but it, it seems like it is more of a controlled variable compared to the other sex hormones that I know even in like exercise physiology, it's like really hard to capture this, the whole cycle of those hormones through and like depending on when and like how and sort of even like different times of day and different things Absolutely. that can affect them. So if you can kind of get that biomarker that is consistent across the board, because I know some patients even have like IUDs or intrauterine devices that, exactly. that are, um, you know, not just the contraceptive pill anymore. There's there's other things. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm really curious of uh, sort of what you uh, is were there specific um, like a paradigm that you did? Because I know you looked at the level of distress and cognition. Yeah. So we, I recruited from a, like Toronto Rehab, a clinic that saw women with persistent symptoms. So this wasn't just general population. And we recruited women under 50. And then we looked at levels of anti-malarian hormone compared to the, sorry, what do you call it? Like population norms. We looked at, there's actually a scale called the menopause rating scale, which assesses different symptoms usually present uh, during the menopause transition. And we use the R bands, the repeatable battery for assessment of neurological status. <laughs> what is that measure um which is cognition basically mm -hmm. and then we measured distress so we, we measured a lot of things oh and then a questionnaire that dr colantonio had used in her previous research which which asked all about cycle cycle metrics so there were definitely a lot of interesting findings so firstly um, was it 60 or 80? Uh, 60 percent of the women had a change in their menstrual cycle over the last year, and 60 percent had amenorrhea, so loss of their period for three months or more. What was really interesting was the cognition piece. Um, 50 percent scored like below the 40th percentile which is super low, but then 30% were even 6% or low, which is not able to function basically in society. So there were some really extreme findings. And then when it came to the anti-malarian hormone levels, um, what was it? 40% of women were less than the norms. So you know, I can't say they were going to go into early menopause, but if it were me, I wouldn't want those anti-malarian hormone levels, 
right? Because they're, they're below normal for their age. So there were definitely a lot of interesting findings. And even when I was, you know, reviewing my thesis this morning, I thought, oh, there's just so many other research questions that can come into this, especially with like a larger sample. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you want, I know that you mentioned that you included all levels of TBI and you said for the most part, they were more mild or like MTBI cases. Um, what percentage, I guess, was there any, like, I guess, like outliers in the sense that they were more severe brain injuries? So it's so interesting because using the word concussion, I know is like a big problem because people just get labeled as having a concussion. But if I were to look at these women, I would say 50% like should not have been labeled concussion just from there were, let's say, a few motor vehicle accidents where they certainly loss of consciousness and post-traumatic amnesia. I mean, it just seemed like there wasn't a fit. But that has to do with how we label things right now and and also who's assessing them at the time. Yeah, definitely. I think, too, like, depending on how long post-injury, like, the changes just in the assessment measures and like robustness of kind of what we do now versus absolutely uh, years ago, even like five years ago is totally different. Um, what I have found really interesting kind of in just my own experience with research is just this like heterogeneity of the sample. So mm -hmm. like, you know, not everyone's going to present the same. Clearly you found some, I guess, like relationships between uh, certain metrics that you looked at. Um, but when you said like, you know, they experienced some change, I'm assuming those changes were like fairly variable amongst the group and that it wasn't like everybody had the same change. Um, Absolutely. What was interesting is was in the younger or like I separated over 30 and under 30. So even with those divisions, it was quite different. All of the ones under 30 did not have kids. All of the ones over 30 had kids in the women under 30 they reported a lot of musculoskeletal complaints and that was not reported in the over 30 group so that was interesting in and of itself um, in terms of mechanism of injury it was variable but it really varied from a slip and hitting the back of the head to being hit with a baseball and motor vehicle accident and I guess that goes to show you that you can have persistent symptoms from a slip and a fall or a motor vehicle accident, right? It doesn't always have to be something huge that leads to persistent symptoms. Yeah, I just actually, I was kind of just perusing through your thesis as we were talking and I just happened to come, I just happened to, uh, come across uh, the hypothalamus pituitary ovarian oh, yes. axis. Um, and that to me just kind of like, you know, jumps out saying like a bit of autonomic influence. And you were talking about just the experience of a trauma versus the actual injury mm. um, and how much like maybe that there's, you know, an I guess a disturbance of sort of our stress response and how we um, respond to it. And I know that physical stress, for example, can cause like over time, like overtraining or things like that can cause like a menorrhea or different things. Absolutely. Um, but I'm curious of like what even just like your own sort of speculations of like what would be sort of, I guess, a management for this. Do you think that 
perhaps there could be stress management or like, is there a nutritional component or what kind of things would you sort of, I guess, determine as being like, you know, how, if something, someone was like this in your uh, clinic, yeah, <laughs> I guess, kind of putting that clinic clinician hat, like what, what did that jump out at you thinking about your own patients or people that you had um, encountered? Sure. So, you know, and it's funny with head injuries because, or it's not funny, it's confusing because the, the symptoms are so nonspecific, right? So um, even in terms of missing your periods, right? Like you said, it could be from stress, could be from the head injury, um, but other things like the headaches, fatigue, that could be from not getting enough sleep. It could be from stress. It could be from depression. So when someone presents with a bunch of symptoms, sort of teasing out, okay, where could this be coming from? From the, the endocrine society, they say, if your periods are normal, you don't need to investigate further. But a disruption in periods, although maybe common, are a sign for investigation. Um, when people are coming into my office, I like to work more with naturopaths because right off the bat, they will do a very thorough investigation, whereas medical doctors are, they're limited in how they can you know, do things. They have to follow a process, which starts with the bird's eye view to catch like really, really red flags. So I would definitely refer to a naturopath so we can get some investigation right off the bat in terms of the reproductive hormones or cortisol the thyroid hormones and see, okay, where could this problem be coming from? And yeah, definitely. And approach it more naturally too. I'm not a medication hater, but I think if we can, if we can work on things without medications, that's great. So definitely through diet and, and some supplements, maybe exercise as well. Yeah, for sure approaching it from that more natural perspective. And I think too, some of the medications that are prescribed end up exacerbating some symptoms that the person already experiences. And they could be Absolutely. like just, you know, a, a, a normal side effect of it. But like that person doesn't need more dizziness or more of a headache or different, different symptoms that they get um, day to day. And they tend to shy, they tend to like, you know, not adhere to taking the medication because they mm -hmm. feel worse and they want to feel better. Um, so it's really interesting because I've been kind of investigating this more myself lately of just looking into. Um, and so that just to kind of give everybody an idea of like what the hypothalamus uh, pituitary ovarian axis or kind of that whole um, process, I guess, is associated with the autonomic response. If you could explain a little bit of how that, I guess, affects like brings in that ovarian piece. Um, oh, sure. So, oh, but one thing I just wanted to mention in terms of medications, the other thing, you know, and I'll ask patients when they come in, if they're already on medications, well, what's your plan to get off of it? Right? Like, because yeah. often you're prescribed a medication without the exit plan. And I feel like most people don't want to be on medications for the rest of their life. So I think that's an important piece that even if you choose to go down the medication route, that you should know what the long-term plan is regarding that. Yeah, definitely. I think the right physicians who are experienced in this mm -hmm. know that it's like a, it's typically a temporary prescription to just get over kind of a hump in sort of symptom exacerbation and whether it's a sleep aid or something that's mm -hmm. a headache medication, maybe just to like kind of, or maybe it's a rescue medication. I know that yeah. uh, some, some people will get such severe migraines that they almost need their like rescue medication mm -hmm. just for those specific migraines, um, versus taking it every single day. Um, 
but yeah, if, uh, yeah, so that's a very good point. I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, yeah, just getting back to the access. So, um, oh, I froze one second to, are we here? Yes. Okay. Um, um sorry, did I freeze there? Froze, but we're here. Um, <laughs> so the pituitary, um, sort of ovarian axis is a basically the pituitary gland is in the brain and it's called the master gland because it is a master regulator of hormones and then our ovaries are in our stomach area <laughs> and the pituitary communicates with our ovaries and other glands in terms of function so the pituitary will release a hormone that communicates with the ovaries and then the ovaries really so follicle stimulating hormone with the ovaries and luteinizing hormone going back up to the brain and those hormones are like an orchestra and how they are regulated determines how we menstruate so the theory or one of the theories is the concussion or head injury causes a trauma to the brain, which causes shearing forces and may actually structurally disrupt the area around the pituitary and disrupt this communication cycle so that hormones are not necessarily getting to the ovaries and that communication pathway can't be completed. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, w I wanted to hear that explanation just because commonly hear about the like hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis <laughs> and more of just the you know, kind of, you know, not sex specific, but um, how it responds to our levels of cortisol and like our, so cortisol is kind of triggers our stress response. And um, over time that elevated cortisol can result in like immunosuppression and just, and cause us to be more susceptible to, you know, illness and other stressors and things. So it's really interesting to hear kind of that more sex specific uh, and how that like the ovarian piece builds into that axis and thinking of it as just like kind of tilting the axis a little bit and be like, it's yes. not just one axis. There's probably <laughs> multidimensional uh, components to that, which I think sometimes we get a lot of clinicians get stuck in this really, um, uh, you know, where it's just black and white and there's just like this and this and it's like, or, you know, it's instead of looking at it kind of more holistically, which I think you do a really good job of doing. Um, Thank you. Of, uh, yeah. There was a study, a small, another small sampled study that looked at estrogen, follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, cortisol. I think that was all. And so, and looking through the lens of is it the cortisol driving the disruption? And in their sample, they did find that when the cortisol came down, that uh, like menstruation started to regulate again. So I think that, yeah, we just need so much more research in this area. Yeah. And also it's, there are so many factors because everyone is so different in terms of other conditions, predispositions, previous traumas in their lives. So, so yes. Yeah, I always for the future. <laughs> I know. I think I think of the endocrine system as like this unicorn that like a lot of education programs don't speak well to and they just don't cover it as much. Like I know in like I did athletic therapy and physiotherapy, but often we didn't hear much about the endocrine system at all. Like we covered neuroanatomy, but we did not speak of 
endocrinology like at all. <laughs> um, I know other professions do more of, and I think it would, it's kind of doing a disservice because I think it, it does play into a lot of how we manage individuals in particular and that kind of therapeutic alliance of just understanding those things and understanding those effects. And I think you nailed it on the head when you said like, it's really individual. Like I always think of like the individual, their context and then like their demands and like mm -hmm. all those variables are always different amongst every person that comes in. Um, so yeah, this is incredibly interesting. Um, I'm yeah, sure there's yeah. follow-up work going on with that building off of this. So I know I'm supposed to probably do the follow-up to this. <laughs> You know, what's so interesting. So the, unfortunately, my thesis was a small sample, but it was the first study that looked at that hormone with respect to TBI. So I, I feel like it should go into a PhD. But especially now post COVID, a study with blood samples, it, like this, my master's was a really hard study to do, I will say just logistically, you know how it is research, yeah. ethics, all this, like no one wants to give blood, <laughs> all that sort of thing. Um, but the other interesting thing, so my lab mate at the same time was looking at menstrual cycle at the time of injury which we know is associated with, so that luteal phase is associated with poor outcomes, which is super interesting. And I always say women get the short end of the stick, right? <laughs> because we have so much that we have to worry about, even the time in our cycle when we get a concussion. So it's, yeah, for you know, sure. I just think the next couple of years is going to be really enlightening. And Hopefully, I think actually the podcast I listened to with you, you touched on this, like we have this knowledge, women are at a greater risk at certain times, so their training should be modified, right? Like we can yeah. do some really high level things in terms of managing risk. You can't take away the risk, but we certainly can try and minimize Yeah, even like levels of fatigue and different things, um, like you're saying, like if you know, I know that some strength coaches will modify strength and conditioning programs based on, you right. know, the cycle and just not push as hard during certain times. Um, so yeah, it's all like, I think it's just such a, like you said, it's like a, even three years ago it was wide open. I think even just like right now, I was just kind of like knocking on the door and like opening it up is going to be like when, you know, some larger sample sizes. And mm -hmm. obviously when research and more invasive techniques can be used again, um, it's going to be really interesting. It's sort of like the whole world has been in sort of a halt during COVID. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I don't really feel so bad about my own data collection because everybody's kind of in the same boat. Um, but basically when you built off of this, um, so you you have your own clinical practice, uh, the rehab lab yeah. in Toronto. Um, and so you see like post-concussion um, and uh, like do you assess acute, I'm assuming acute concussion, chronic concussion, um, and so obviously, like you kind of mentioned this, how, you know, hormone therapy isn't necessarily in our wheelhouse. <laughs> um, and it's so like, you know, you found all these interesting things and like, yes, you can educate and do all these really great things, but um, you can't necessarily intervene uh, directly with this. So um, for your PhD, you've sort of taken a different direction um, with your focus in looking at different interventions to perhaps be more direct with your patient population. Yeah, absolutely. So I do think this has certainly helped me become a more maybe complete practitioner or just I really dig 
down into the menstrual cycle stuff, whereas I know it's sometimes brushed over. So I think patients appreciate that. And sometimes they don't realize it's connected. They got a hand injury, they stopped getting their period, but they do not make the connection whatsoever. So I certainly use my knowledge in my practice and in terms of referring out. But I always knew that for my PhD, I wanted to do something more intervention-based and really sort of validating some things I do in my practice. And I know there's always that question, oh, where's the research supporting this? Where's the research supporting that? And people don't realize that research comes from clinical practice, not the other way around, right? um, Inquisitive clinicians want to validate what they're seeing. And so a lot of what I do is eye movement based, similar to you. And so that is really the direction I want my PhD to take, even though I don't necessarily think that can be standardized, but I think there are different maybe um, approaches. I think there's something we can do at least to validate it. So we will see where that goes. I definitely will have a, a sex-based piece though, whether it's a questionnaire to see what else changes while we do these this intervention. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of where our stuff sort of aligns well is uh, like I do a lot right now with mainly visual perception um, and how it links to postural control or balance. But um, a lot of it comes down to like a lot of my, you know, the background of my uh, my literature view and everything includes a ton on the visual system. And that's where Mm -hmm. I had a huge, you know, respect for the actual visual system itself and the true components of it. Um, as we say, I'm a bit of a stickler on vision therapy and like yes. what we're actually doing because it, whether it's a perceptual thing or an ocular yes. motor thing, it's a different, that's a dis- different system altogether. Um, but I find it incredibly interesting, uh, like, you know, the interventions that we can do, even just linking vision to movement and vision to balance and head and neck movement. Um, there's so many more connections than Absolutely. even when I started my PhD that I was even aware of, because again, we weren't taught about it. Um, and I think just even my own reading and, and research has led to so many more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, again, this is sort of like a huge wild west of research, even though I feel like there's so much already done. Um, there's just so many more opportunities for it. It's also what you look for. Just like I think everyone in the world is a concussion clinician, but it's just because that's who I'm surrounded with. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I also think with the the eye movements or the visual stuff, it's it was buried in the optometry research for so long, but now yeah. it's really coming out because the eyes are involved in everything. Exactly, it's how we perceive the world around us. It's how we get our frame of references. Like mm-hmm. so many so many um, variables with that, and I think once there's dysfunction in that, um, it creates a whole cascade of problems. Not just that an op like that of an optometry mm-hmm. perspective. Um, you know, there's like ophthalmology, there's a whole yes. other, there's other sectors there that um, I think just even my own referrals have kind of learned through like who to, who to send to and who, uh, like who's appropriate for what. Um, and I, I'm curious, like, do you have a specific kind of like focus on what, what do you want to look at with eye movement and um in particular of anything that you've just noticed in clinic that you just like, I don't know what this is. Cause sometimes I run into those questions where I'm just like, 
this is something that's not in a textbook anywhere. And even some of the optometrists don't know what this is. <laughs> so. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also, so two parts. One, I want to compare to like a very basic standard sort of intervention, because also part of it is, do we need the fancy stuff? Or if people do X, Y, Z, will they get better? Um, but I actually want to look at the basics. I would like to see if, let's say we give three things, if three most of the most sort of like basic eye things, if, if that is enough, like, do we need to be, which probably you're like, no, it's not, but, <laughs> but no, not at all. I think that's, uh, can we simplify, I mean, not for everyone, but can we simplify something and two sort of outcomes, one actual sort of stress with the eyes, can people get back to, to reading the computer? Uh, and then the other depression, anxiety, so se separate outcomes, but we know that eye movements are very much involved with the frontal lobe, which is also depression, anxiety. So like just looking at that, those layers, right? If we do a simple intervention, like can we really improve quality of life? Yeah, definitely. I think when those disturbances exist, I think they factor into all of a sudden more stress, more anxiety mm -hmm. about whether it's like a vocational thing, like can they work because of their vision right. issues? They facilitate all these other things that aren't directly connected and maybe to specifically the eye movements themselves. But yeah, yeah. you're right. There is a lot of connection of even just like papillary responses to mm -hmm. the autonomic system. Absolutely. Um, you know, and like we can't always measure like the amplitude of pupil dilation yeah. and constriction, <laughs> but it's just checking pupil, you know, uh, responsiveness is that enough to detect something going on I think that I'm all for like low cost accessible mm -hmm. interventions that more in, in more clinicians can use um, I know I don't I promote a lot of different tech but uh, that's part of the objective yeah. side of me too of like mm -hmm. being able to actually give a number to something and connect it to a, a value um, sure. that I do sorry oh, go in there gonna say, you know I have the goggles like the cicade analytic goggles for the mm -hmm. objective eye measurements I always do my own assessment first and of course the specificity of the goggles is way more but I think we can do a lot with the low cost right if you're if you're eyes are trained, you can pick up on the stuff. And that's what I'm finding. So it would be amazing. Same with the intervention, like make it as accessible as possible, especially with, you know, who knows how long we're going to be doing virtual. So. Exactly. Yeah. So um, you've got the, uh, do you want to explain just uh, oh, what yes. the Cicade analytic system sure. is for everyone? So the Cicade analytic system, they are VR goggles that there are six little cameras that point to each eyeball and it measures the eye movements and tracks it on sort of a graph and it will show to a great precision just how far off the eye movement is to the target and then it will test VOR so it will look at the head movement in relation to the eye movement and if that is coordinated well or not compared to you know standardized norms um, and that 
was created by a research team out of McGill. So it's Canadian. <laughs> yeah, honestly, there's like a plethora of Canadian yeah. tech. Amazing. We were just, we were talking about like NeuroTracker a little bit. That's out of yes. Montreal. There's like, I use with the FitLight system is, is it Aurora? It's like, there's so much that actually you can just on our doorstep. Yes. Um, so that's, that's really interesting that um, I've seen that system. I haven't personally used it. Um, but uh, yeah, I it's, feel like it's a great patient education tool. So instead of yeah. me just moving my thumb around, having them track it, then I can say, look, you know, you can't, your eye doesn't move in the upper right quadrant at all <laughs> or whatever yeah, it might be. Give them a visual and the <laughs> feedback to mm-hmm. say, like, look at your accuracy with your mm-hmm. eye movements and your tracking. Because mm-hmm. typically, um, you know, when you do smooth pursuits in clinic, they don't mm-hmm. often provoke symptoms in a lot of people. No. Rare, mm-hmm. Like occasionally, yes, but in most people, that's like the easiest one to do. And then it's like, okay, let's go on to the harder stuff. Um, and they all start like, oh, I can track. And then it's like, they sometimes struggle, but really catching that is hard. And Absolutely. I emphasize the quality, like even like dry eyes, like do they have mm-hmm. to blink? Like, do they, you know, it's just like they're... Or they don't blink at all. Yeah, or they're <laughs> just like... You can observing the patient while they're doing it rather than just doing this like age pattern being okay yes. that's, that's good yes. check it off I think that that one would be you know significantly overlooked with a lot of clinical assessments just based on like how I think that's taught I think it's taught more to see like really gross deficits yes, and there so. isn't always a gross deficit it can sometimes be a really like that is only finally captured in something that's more objective. Like it's basically a, a virtual eye tracker essentially because mm-hmm. we use eye tracking system in our, um, in my lab where we can see like where basically the fovea is focusing on okay. different targets or different things in the environment. So that is really interesting. And I, I've definitely wanted to get my hands on something like that too, to play with it a little bit. If you're um, ever in Toronto, you come in and we'll, uh, we'll assess you. <laughs> yeah. I, I would love to be able to, to tinker around with different, I, I just like love the different tech stuff. I know it's, it's not always like cost-friendly in those senses of like know. all these things, things, but right? <laughs> I, I have this like affinity for, it, I think just being in research, but um, it is, it would be really cool to kind of validate it against, um, you know, basic things that maybe like certain tweaks to assessment that could make it a much more robust objective measure um, to be able to refine it for certain people to just be like, Absolutely. give it a little bit more of a parameter so that it's not, I feel like nobody, like the interrelator, like, so the, I guess yes. the reliability between clinicians performing that is something that is, again, like taken for granted. I think people just do it really fast and they don't often think about really the, you know, the distance or speed or things that they're yeah. moving. So I totally agree. That'd be really cool. Yeah. So with, um, um, the goggles, I was just going to say for athletes, they are really helpful. I know. So since I come from a martial arts background, I have a lot of Uh, like MMA fighters coming in, not a lot, but a good amount. (laughs) And I know one fighter I work with and we found that um, he just had really, really poor eye tracking in that whole like bottom half of his field of vision. And I said, oh my gosh, well, we have to work on this because if you have kicks coming up or, you know, anything coming from there, it's just your, your, visual field is not necessarily precisely fielding that out yeah it's like capturing everything Mm -hmm. even as quickly like you've spoken about communication issues Mm -hmm. and I often find that a lot of the dysfunction related to concussion is related to communication of like whether you know just in that plane like there's just it's not getting (laughs) to the cortex fast enough to perceive it Um, 
So that stuff is all really cool. And I find too that, again, like you take some of these things and you make it really tailored to someone that you can almost like kind of make it up as you go because you Mm -hmm. have this base knowledge in the fundamentals. And I've said this before on this podcast of like understanding the basics and like that's kind of what you're getting to with your PhD work is like understanding that stuff allows you instead of looking at it like a checklist Mm -hmm. like looking at it from like this holistic scope and then being like okay this person needs to do this specific thing this is the other symptoms they experience and this is how I can like work with them rather than doing like a specific like the one intervention that's you know associated with that it's like you can adapt those things so easily and make it really specific like make um, the foundation so strong and then build from there. Exactly. And that's that's why a lot of the stuff I teach even is just like neuroscience. Yeah. <laughs> it's like understand the connectivity and how everything works mm-hmm. together so that you know how to like adapt and exercise to actually engage a lot of different areas. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're speaking to with the functional neurology um, piece as well. I think I've seen a few people who've taken those courses where they've really connected a lot of those things together in that integration piece. Yeah. So I know, and even in osteopathy, they would say the same thing. If you know the, the anatomy, the physiology, then you know, the treatment. Yeah. Right. So I I think that it's interesting or speaks true, right? If you just immerse yourself in, in really understanding how things are working, then, then you can tailor how to improve something. Exactly. And it allows you to think that like dive deeper into mm-hmm. even your, uh, like your questions and your interviewing. Cause I think that's where a lot, like most of our information comes from to be able to create interventions is like, yeah. do we take a good enough history based on what we know about those systems? Um, and so that's that, yeah, incredibly interesting. I I'm totally into that stuff as well. <laughs> um, so why don't we, uh, so your practice in oh, Toronto, yeah. um, <laughs> Sorry, I speak, a, speak a little bit to that. I know um, we probably go on about a bunch of other topics. Um, so it's in downtown Toronto. I'm a solopreneur like yourself. So I work in a shared space um, and I see acute concussion, chronic, um, like post concussion syndrome. And I do still see some body injuries, right? Just the usual sports injuries and such. And I have a uh, approach to care involving the sort of brain-based exercises, nutrition. I do make supplement recommendations usually, uh, manual therapy and then aerobic exercise. So using the different pillars and then as needed, I will, I have different practitioners that I will refer out to in the city for the team-based approach, but we're not all under the same roof. And I kind of like that because I'm not limited by people who are in the same space. Yeah, I know sometimes like if you're either directly working kind of under a practitioner, Mm -hmm. then it's sort of your delegated task rather than being able to creatively work together and collaborate. Um, I've only seen it. versus another, let's say. Yeah. And then there's like, you can kind of tailor the collaboration as well a little bit better. Um, I've only seen a couple of situations where it's been like really collaborative with like physician led care that's like Mm -hmm. in house. Um, But unfortunately, that isn't in every clinic. So um, I think that's a a misunderstanding for a lot of people when they're seeking concussion care of like Mm -hmm. what they're really looking for. Um, and seeking out kind of like the unicorns like yourself that have this like extensive background in so many areas that, um, you know, you could mm-hmm. really help like certain cases that are, you know, see a handful of practitioners before they reach you. Um, I often find that where like they seek out just that general concussion certification. Mm-hmm. They go to those, they oh, go yeah. to a list of clinics and then 
they go to those clinics and eventually they're like, this isn't working. And then they end up finding someone like ourselves on, you know, social media or just through a friend or a referral. And, and then they're like, wow, I wish I'd come here sooner. I know, I know. <laughs> um, but it is hard when we've got so many balls in the air, like you're doing a PhD, you've got mm-hmm. your practice, um, even just closing up your master's, like you probably just got all that stuff kind of done in the last year. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, and moving parts. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, I think it's awesome though, to have your hands in all of those different areas of just, you're connecting the lab directly to your clinic. And that's what I've always loved to do, but it is a far stretch. It sometimes spreads it you really thin. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of demands to that. And so when people hear about people like yourself too, especially students, like I always hope they understand that how difficult it is to actually pull off everything that like, you know, you're doing and I'm doing and just that it isn't as easy as it looks as like on social media sometimes. (laughs) I'm sure that, yeah. No, it's so true. But I think it's so important, just like the work you're doing, mixing your, you know, or maintaining your clinical practice and doing your research, because I know often researchers end up in the silos and they haven't seen a patient in years. And I just, I, I don't want to be that person. I really always want to be connecting the research to the patients, making sure it's relevant, making sure I'm actually seeing human beings. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just that connection piece, I think, for both of us probably is like, I've never wanted to give up my clinical practice because that's where I started. Um, I've always wanted to answer my questions, but I've always wanted to be able to help people directly with those answers. And I think when people get in the silos, it's usually they get like into that streamline of academia purely where it's Mm -hmm. like, they, they work on a lot more How fundamental stuff. Parents. Yeah. And it's, it's more of that professor, professor, professorship <laughs> route, which is really demanding in itself that you can't really maintain a practice. There's only a few people I can think of that really, you know, have that magical role where they're like doing research for a proportion of their career and also for clinic in a, in an institution. So, yeah. um, you know, and those jobs aren't always readily available. So like, sometimes you got to make it up, you make it, make it work yourself. <laughs> and that's kind of what I think we've done is probably creating, you know, our own entities and working mm-hmm. within those things to have the creativity and the freedom to do the things yeah. that, you know, we see work for people. Um, so I think it's incredibly awesome. Uh, so I want you to just like, we're going to close things up, but um, just, you know, plug your clinic, you know, your Instagram, sure. social media, website, whatever you want to share of like what you're doing next. Um, sure. So you can find me on Instagram at the.rehab.lab. And I like to post a lot of great things on there. Also, my website is rehablab.ca. And there's a pop-up that is called Concussed Now What? And it's a, just an easy PDF you can print and put it in your uh, first aid kit about, you know, tips for the first 48 hours after you've had a concussion. And I think that's about it. Reach out if you have any questions about my research or anything else, and I'm happy to chat. That's awesome. We'll share all that info in the show notes for this podcast so you'll be able to find her Instagram handle and website there. Um, But again, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, meet with us and do this podcast. Um, I think it'll be really enlightening for a lot of people. Um, So in closing, thank you for listening to the Thrive Neurosport podcast series. You can find me on Instagram at Thrive Neurosport and learn more about clinical neurosport education or CNS ed on my website, thriveneurosport.ca. Until next time, keep thriving on, friends. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology.
Join organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on Headshake Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadshakeHealth.com for more. Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound. www.bensound.com 